Hey guys, Darren Watts here. Uh, before we get into this podcast, I just want to throw a disclaimer out there for everybody that's listening. Firstly, I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to me. But if anybody is listening to this podcast for the sake of advice, well, for the sake of actually trying to solicit advice from a professional, professional, then I'm not your guy. I would recommend that you listen to another podcast that has just that, a professional mental health personnel, psychologist, and all of them. But if you're listening to me just to hear my story, hear other people's story, and just solicited uh, some knowledge or some educational stuff from what I read, then this is the podcast for you to listen to. But other than that, thank you for listening, and enjoy this podcast. Alright, so, for today's podcast, I am throwing out another disclaimer. Uh, For today's episode, I am going to discuss um, a safety plan in continuation for the domestic violence uh, series. Um, And while I'm doing that, I'm just going to throw out there that this is not a um, correct way of creating a plan, and this is no wrong way to do it. It's based on the uniqueness of the victim that is actually um, studying the aspects of the abuser. So anytime that you are studying the abuser, use that and take that seriously when it comes down to creating a plan. So do not take this plan as a one approach all, a correct way of doing it, but using it as more of a guide or reference. So that's the disclaimer for that. And once again, I appreciate everybody listening to this podcast. So let's hit this. What are the effects of racism on health and mental health? Uh, racism or discrimination based on race or ethnicity is a key contributing factor in disease onset. It is also responsible for increasing physical and mental health disparities among black indigenous and people of color. So the COVID-19 pandemic has brought disparities in healthcare outcomes for different races and ethnic groups into greater focus. So the CDC revealed that a BIOPOC in the United States experienced higher rates of hospitalization and death than white populations. This article looks at how racism can impact a person's body, how it affects physical and mental health, how a person can live healthily, healthfully while facing the burden of racism, and how socioeconomic factors that have association with racism can continue to pose physical and mental health risks. So how does racism impact our bodies? According to the CDC, racial and ethnic minority populations experience higher levels of poor health and disease across various conditions when compared with their white counterparts. These sparks disparities, I mean, these stark disparities have driven interest into and research into how racism may affect people's physical and mental health. A 2019 research Review 
found positive associations between reports of racial discrimination in many physical and mental health conditions, as well as preclinical indicators for disease. Uh, these include cardiovascular disease, coronary artery, calcification, mental health disorders, uh, which is depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, eating disorders, and psychosis. Uh, obesity, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, alcohol use and misuse, engaging in high-risk behaviors, poor sleep, inflammation, cortisol dysregulation is a hormone that regulates stress levels in the body. Health inequality and racism. The above research reviewed examined evidence linking mental and physical health outcomes to three key mechanisms of racism. It found that people can experience health inequality through structural or institutional racism. The processes of racism embedded in policies, laws, and social practices that give advantages to racial groups deemed superior, right racial groups deemed inferior or disadvantaged. For an example, structural racism in the criminal justice system can lead to poor health outcomes. Cultural racism, the spread of the ideology that certain groups are inferior through language, values, media, and symbols. For example, racist stereotypes can influence the housing decisions of white property owners and lead to racial segregation in neighborhoods. This can create communities of concentrated poverty with worse housing and environmental conditions. Uh, I think me and Derek could kind of relate to that. Just kind of, not too much. Just showing some stupid, petty things as a clear, you know, example. I have to get into deeper detail, but that's for another time. Individual level discrimination, where individuals or companies discriminate against racial groups, whether intentionally or without intent. This can result in worse access to employment, education, and medical care. Have you ever had the sense of deja vu and it seemed like that y'all have already read this before? And I'm starting to feel that way. But I don't think there's nothing wrong in reading it again. So in adults, a 2015 systematic review collated the results of almost 300 studies to examine how racism affects the physical and mental health of Asian American, African American, and Latin American people. Yeah, I think I've read this. I'm going to do this in repetitions. The sections below would detail the conclusions of this review, as well as those of the studies. Uh, physical health. The above review found the experience of racism has associations with poor mental health and, to a lesser extent, poor physical health. There is a considerable research to suggest that the stress that outcomes with experiencing racism can have a long-lasting physical effects. Stress can elevate blood pressure and weaken the immune system, which in turn raises the risk of developing long-term health conditions. Racism has links with higher rates of stress increasing a person of color's risk of developing high blood pressure. 
The CDC report that black people are more likely to have hypertension than any other racial or ethnic group. Also, a 2019 study found that racist experience appeared to increase inflammation in African-American people, raising the risk of developing chronic conditions such as heart disease and kidney disease. Another study found that unfair treatment of people of color significantly, significantly affects sleep and physiological function, functioning in midlife. Many studies have cited structural racism within medical care as a key factor in poor physical health. For example, a 2016 study of racial bias and pain management found a link between undertreating pain in black patients and false biological beliefs such as black, black people's skin is thicker than white people's skin. A 2015 study found that compared with other racial groups, black children with severe pain from epitenditis are less likely to receive medication. This suggests that racial bias is causing medical professionals to use different pain thresholds for different racial groups, either inadvertently or purposefully, before administering care. Uh, mental health. The 2015 meta-analysis found that the association between racism and mental health is twice as strong as the link between racism and physical health. Of those, the researcher, researchers sampled by a POC who reported experiences of racism also experienced the following mental health issues. Depression, stress, emotional distress, anxiety, PTSD, and suicidal thoughts. Hate crimes against Asian American people and Pacific Islanders surged during the COVID-19 pandemic. And a 2021 study found that COVID-19 related racial ethnic discrimination has links for greater risk of depression, anxiety, self-harm, binge drinking, and suicidal ideation among Asian and uh, Pacific Islanders uh, students. A 2018 paper suggests that fear of racism itself is harmful and that it can undermine good mental health characteristics, such as resilience, hope, and motivation. The paper also underlined how verbal and physical assault can cause PTSD. So I'm just going to leave that there. Um, I'll continue with this uh, medical news today. Um, I'll put this article out. And uh, I just want everybody to understand that um, I'm bringing more awareness to mental health and racism at the same time. Also, while talking about mental health, you know, I just want everybody to understand that well, people with mental health issues or mental health illness can also suffer within African-American people or any other other groups besides white, are dealing with these issues. And the more that we look into it and the more that we talk about this, the more that hopefully that people can be a little bit more open-minded about these issues and be able to hear a lot of these issues that are going on today. So I just want everybody to just keep this in mind while we still talk about mental health too. That's the message. All right, I'm back. 
and welcome back to another edition of Breaking Mental Health with Durham. Of course, I am the one, Durham. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Um, we have, of course, the message I just spread out. Um, we have my journey, your journey here in a few seconds. And I'm continuing Domestic Violence Part 3. Um, so, today I believe it's going to be New York. We're going to talk about it. But first, we're going to head on to my journey, your journey, right now. So, when we talk about my journey, your journey, I do different numerous of things. And I want to continue the mental health racism from what I talk about in the message. The different things that I read and talk about and experience. And it's all over the world. It's happened here in the hometown of Indiana. Um, it's happened, you know, pretty much everywhere in the U.S. So just hit me up on the email. Uh, BreakingMiddleH at gmail.com uh, You don't have email or you use email less, use more social media, uh, go ahead and hit me up there in the DMs. Um, I am Morley on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Instagram, uh, Love University, and Twitter, at Love University. Now let's keep this conversation going. Let's keep everything that we know in the base of racism and mental health, we need to keep that going. So let's do this. Alright, so here we go. Um, we're right back at it again. Domestic violence. This is part three of the series. Um, last week, I had discussed uh, domestic violence and mental health. How um, domestic violence and mental health compares to domestic violence with, you know, in general, sameness, non-mental health issues or illness of that sort. And of course, I went into the state of Indiana. Um, thank you for listening. I really appreciate you guys, the hometown, representing, listening. So I did Indiana as part of domestic violence, and my next one is going to be New York. Uh, my other top listeners, uh, I appreciate y'all come tuning in and listening in. I really appreciate y'all too. Um, I'm going to read off some stats and stuff based off of uh, New York. So, um, also, um, nah, that's it. So, let's go ahead and first, before we get into all of the um, readings of New York, I do want to get into creating... A safety plan. I threw a disclaimer out there earlier, way earlier in the podcast. Um, pretty much just describing the disclaimer about this uh, uh, safety plan. Now, this, uh, this creating the safety plan is really time consuming based off of how. 
you know, um, trying to have different, you know, uh, thoughts and ideas on how you want to escape and things like that. So, when we're talking about a safety plan, we're looking at very deep details. We're looking at every deep aspect of what you're dealing with when you're in a domestic violence relationship. So, so let's take a look at some of these uh, safety plans. Some of these are, now the bullet points are short and they're divided up, but when these bullet points are here, they're pretty much going to be time consuming based off of, um, and depending on where you are standing at with the domestic violence relationship. So when it comes down to a safety plan uh, during a violent incident, uh, room safety, avoid rooms like bathrooms, uh, kitchens, or rooms with possible weapons. Uh, have a packed bag ready for self and children. The same for yourself and children. Uh, discuss bag contents, documents, clothing, money, pictures, etc. Uh, identify a safe person or place to go to. And code word for friends or children. Now, normally, normally you would say, oh, why would you put a plan on blast? Why would you do that? You know what I'm saying? Because of the fact of abusers can be listening to this or whatever. Yeah, okay, that may be. But let me say this. To the fact that abusers could listen to this or they could be having a good idea on what's going on, no one understand that this is an open way. To get the abusers to understand that the more that you put yourself into predicaments like this, the better off that the victim is going to be when it comes down to you. And that's flatline. That's straight flatline. It's like we're calling you out on your mess. Survivors slash victims has unique stories. Every single one of them has unique stories. So putting a safety plan out there doesn't really necessarily say, oh, why would you do something stupid? It's not something that we're doing something stupid on. What I say in the disclaimer? The disclaimer is, this is not a one-for-all approach. This is not the one way for it to be correct. This is not the one way for it to be wrong. It's based off the uniqueness of the victim. So putting this on blast is going to be a perfect thing. Period. That's how it is. So for safety at home, practice with children how to get out of the home if needed. Uh, inform housemates, property owners, neighbors of abuse. Uh, avoid rooms like bathroom or kitchen during violent incidents. Change keys and locks. 
uh, practice safe word and calling 911 with children. Safety with restraining order. Carry a copy with you. Provide copy to schools, employers, child care, and service providers. Uh, inform family, friends, neighbors, and call police to enforce restraining orders. Now, I don't like saying this, but this is just, um, some of these are just straight up is what it is. Some states are just don't, they just don't take restraining orders seriously. I know Colorado takes restraining orders seriously um, because I think they have a lot of stricter punishments. I think there was a, I think it was a few more states off the top of my head. I forgot them that quick, but um, most of the states really don't take them seriously because it's the bottom of their problem, and that's why domestic violence really just really just is blowing out of proportion because of this nobody's taking the restraining order seriously and that's how people get killed so it's time that the restraining orders start protecting like how it's supposed to restraining orders really fail when it comes to certain states and the, the police department don't take them seriously but those that actually are strict on them and they're serious about it it can save you so just be aware of that uh, safety at work, uh, copy of restraining order, inform building security, provide picture, car information, uh, change your work route, and switch your lunch places. Uh, safety at school, copy of restraining order, inform building security, change the school route, inform school administration, professor, teachers, classmates. Emotional safety, remind myself, this is not my fault. Practice, I can statements. Talk with friends, family, and counselor. Limit direct communication with partner or ex-partner. Attend support groups. Practice self-care and coping strategies. Create emotional safety plan for, before, and after interactions with partner and or ex-partner. Financial safety. Gather family documents with ident identifying information. IDs, birth certificates, social security cards. Save any amount in hiding place or open separate account. Avoid opening a joint bank account. Uh, change account direct deposits, passwords, and PINs, which is personal identification numbers. Uh, check credit history with free reports. Uh, set up alerts on credit cards and other financial accounts. And technology and social media safety. Change passwords. Clear computer search history. Change agency names on phones. Uh, remove location from posts. Turn off GPS or location settings on apps. Limit online information sharing. Filter friends. Block partners slash mutual friends. Safety with children. How to stay safe at home during violent incident. Safe work. Calling police. Stay in the room. Practice safety plan with children. And confirm pickup authorization from school, child care, after school program, and or camps. Visitation safety. Talk with children about safety in other homes during visits slash overnights. Uh, practice how to call 911. Create an exit plan if child needs to leave the home. Custody exchange safety. Avoid exchange of custody at your home or other parents' homes. Meet in public place, restaurant, bank, store, police station. Bring someone with you. Use school times for exchanges to avoid direct interaction. Safety while houseless. Sleeping in car or on streets. 
have a code word with friends staying near you. Keep a charged cell phone on you if possible. Try not to keep a weapon with you. Inform case manager, advocate, counsel of current location. It is important to remember that in moments of panic, your brain may not remember even the simplest of details due to the large amount of adrenaline pumping through your veins. So creating a safety plan will give you protection during those stressful, stressful moments. So rather if you decide to stay or to end the relationship, uh, the changes may be big, such as going to a confidential shelter or changing schools or smaller, such as changing email passwords or the route you take to work. Safety plans look different for each survivor slash victim and their family. Proactive planning on how to safely leave, protect your children, and get assistance and support can enhance your safety if a violent incident occurs. I have the link here from uh, harborcommunityclinic.com. It's a blog. I will have that in the description. Um... You could look at it as many times as you like. That's where I read it from. That's the reference I got it from. I just want everybody to understand that there are ways to escape. There are ways to understand your exit strategy. And there are no right or wrong ways of creating a safety plan. None at all. Your uniqueness will always lead you the right way. It will do that. And I want everybody to understand that using a safety plan not only helps with family members coping with the issue, it can also relieve them knowing that you have some kind of plan and doesn't really, you know, make them feel better because you are in the situation, but it more or less just gives them a little sigh of relief because you're prepared. Um, like I said, I said it last week, I've experienced, not experienced it myself, but experienced it, the people that I know, and it could be scary and it is scary. And uh, upon top, it could get worse. And so now when you're dealing with those type of things, you are dealing with a lot of emotional trauma. You're dealing with a lot of a lot of emotional trauma during it, before it, and after. So you have to really think about how you can be able to help your loved ones or your best friend be able to escape or be able to help with their safety plan. You know, sometimes you have to, you have to be slick with a lot of things. Trust me, there are people out here that will help you. You just have to get them involved. I understand, you know, you being, you know, feeling ashamed or you just don't want to report because you know, you know, it's going to get worse. But at the same time, some abusers are not the brightest people in the crayon box. They're not. They're smart, but they're still not the brightest people in the crayon box because there's going to be a lot of things that they might not know about you. So, and sometimes you have to 
escape, even if it's two minutes, even if it's one minute, even if it's every week, even if it's every month, every if it's every year, or every blue moon, it happens. It happens. The smallest opportunities creates the biggest opportunity that will ever happen to you. And it could be a game changer. The biggest game changer ever. So, preparing to leave. Get your safety plan together. Get everything together. If you, have, if you need to really rewind this part over and over and over again, do it. That would be my one advice. If you need to rewind something, I don't care if it's my podcast. I don't care if it's somebody else's podcast. I don't care. If you need to rewind something and keep hearing it in repetitions, do it. That's the only way to help you. Right? It'll help you. So, there's that. State of New York. Let's read on some stats on the state of New York. 31.7% of New York women and 29% of New York men experience intimate partner physical violence. Uh, intimate partner sexual violence and and or intimate partner stalking in their lifetimes. In 2018, New York City law enforcement responded to 250,447 domestic incident reports. Police outside of New York City responded to 182,893 domestic incidents. There were 59 intimate partner homicides in New York in 2018 comprising 44% of female and 2% of male homicide victims 16 years of age or older. 40% were committing using firearms. In 2018, 228,769 protective orders were entered into New York's Order of Protection Registry. Also in 2018, non-residential domestic violence programs served 39,458 survivors, and residential programs served 5,969 adults and 6,105 children. 12,269 requests for shelters for adults and 11,949 requests for shelter for children went unmet due to lack of resources. In 2015, there were 153,636 active protective orders in the National Crime Information Center for New York. 75,868 of these had a Brady indicator. As of December 31st, 2019, New York has submitted 335 misdemeanor domestic violence to 61,881 active protective order records to the NICS index. Did you know one in three women and one in four men in the United States have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner? On a typical day, local domestic violence hotlines receive approximately 19,159 calls, approximately 13 calls every minute. 
2018, domestic violence occurred for 20% of all violent crime. Abusers' access to firearms increases the risk of intimate partner femicide of at least fivefold when firearms have been used. In the most severe abuse incident, the, I'm sorry, the risk increases to 41-fold. 65% of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner. 96% of the victims of these crimes are female. Domestic dating and stalking misdemeanors are ineligible for a handgun license in New York. Respondents to ex parte, parte protective orders, including dating partners, wouldn't have their handgun license revoked. If a judge finds there is a substantial risk, the respondent will use it to harm or threaten the petitioner or has committed certain offenses in the past. The judge will also require the respondent to surrender any firearms they own or possesses. Respondents to final protective orders, including dating partners, will have their handgun license revoked if the abuse that led to the order invoked physical violence, threats with a firearm, or a deadly weapon. Felonious violent conduct and or if the court finds substantial risk of the respondent will use it to harm or threaten the petitioner. The judge will also require the respondents to surrender any firearms they own or possesses. Uh, background checks are required for all gun sales and transfers. Uh, New York could strengthen its law to further protect victims and survivors from gun violence by prohibiting domestic violence and daily violence misdemeanors from possessing firearms and requiring them to relinquish any firearms in their possession. Uh, prohibiting all respondents to protect orders from possessing firearms and requiring them to relinquish any firearms in their possession and, if requested by the survivor, require law enforcement to recover firearms when responding to domestic violent incidents. <sighs> New York. New York, New York, New York. I'm just going to say this. Um, to anybody's surprise that, firstly, if anybody have noticed that I've read some of the stuff in uh, repetition, good. I'm glad you noticed it. I'm going to keep doing it because most of these are just reminders of what it is that they're dealing with despite the fact of uh, what's happening within the last three or four years. And the last this has really been updated was 2020. So for New York, it was 2020. This was last updated. So it's been close to three years, if not three years already. So um, I want everybody to understand that every state is different. Like I said, most of the protective orders are different. Um, some are strict, some are not. Um, the only problem that I intend to have when it comes down to firearms and stuff like that, it takes away from the business, which rightfully so needs to be taken away because most of these guns are getting into the wrong hands. It, it, it is. It's getting into the wrong hands. So when they talk about, um, you know, businesses that are making money that's taken away from their living, 
is always called find another profession. Find another profession that is not going to cause people, you know, serious or bodily harm. This is just in my opinion. I'm not saying this, you know, just to be ignorant about it. I'm saying this because domestic violence has to stop. And regardless to what they're using, even if they're not using a gun, they're using different things besides a gun, a knife, you know, four by fours, anything they could get their hands on, they will use it. So why not try to at least take away the main power of source? which is the firearms. Background checks, yeah, they're good. They're good. You know, but at the same time, when it comes down to getting into the wrong hands, freshly new, there's a problem. And I'm pretty sure there's a loophole to it. It cannot be. I don't know. But this is, like I said, this is just in my opinion. You know, this is just in my opinion. So... I'm just going to leave that here, and I just want to remind everybody that despite all of the domestic violence issues, there is a lot going on in the mental health world, too, which connects to domestic violence. It does. So... I'm leaving that there. But that's all I have for today. I appreciate everybody listening to me. I appreciate everyone taking the time to sit down and listen to me. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, So join me next week. I will continue the domestic violence series. This will be part four. I will discuss. And I will read off another state by state. Of domestic violence. Uh, once again, you can hit me up on the email, uh, breakingmiddleage at gmail.com, and you can uh, hit me up on the DMs on social media uh, Twitter at Loved University and Instagram, Loved University. But until then, stay true to yourself and always remember when it comes to listening, you are one step closer to bringing awareness. Let's go.